Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John, and conveniently, it is printed for you in your bulletin, so you may follow along. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When, Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped down for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thanks be to God. I think we can all agree that your voice is that deep. I love this story. I love how mundane and ordinary and slow it is. So many details that um, I wonder, even after studying it for a number of weeks and really years, being familiar with it for a long time, why do we need the hundred yards from the shore. It does make me wonder how fast he swam it. What do you think, Isabel? Counting for drag, hundred yards, we'll, we'll assume freestyle. Charcoal, those of you that are uh, fans of charcoal and actually hate it when people cook things with gas, this is your go-to text. <laughs> obviously, obviously charcoal's better. We know because of John that uh, Peter put his shirt back on, or his garment back on to swim. Um, 153 fish, not 152, not 154. 
The mundane beauty of this story is amazing, not only in and of itself as a narrative section of Scripture, but also because this is the risen Christ. And it contrasts so profoundly with the miracles he performed uh, during his earthly ministry, specifically even Luke 5, when he began to teach the disciples that they were going to become fishers of men, and they went out in two boats and put out the nets, and the nets broke because they caught so many, and this supplemented Jesus' teaching, and here he's not teaching. He's eating with his friends. I love throughout the scriptures, I don't know how familiar you are with the gospels, but we have Peter's passion and um, sometimes we'll just call it overpassion or overeagerness contrasted all the time. And the reason that's important to notice is not because we need to just love Peter or try to be like him. We notice it because of the way Jesus responds over and over and over and over and over and over and over, loving him so well. Remember when... Uh, Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ so beautifully in Mark chapter 8. Jesus begins to talk about how he's going to have to suffer and die. Peter takes him aside and explains to him that this is a real morale killer. <laughs> the rest of the conversation does not go super well for Peter. Remember when Jesus wants to wash his feet and Peter's like, no! And then he's like, okay, but you have to wash all of me. And Jesus is like, just let me do the thing. <laughs> Paraphrasing the text. I notice in, in, in John and in the end of Luke, there's, there's, there's a lot about uh, the disciple John and Peter. And I sometimes wonder if John, um, I sometimes wonder what their relationship was like, you know? It's not like they were old fishing buddies, like they worked together as fishermen. And we notice in this one that Peter left John, you know, to haul fish back. You notice that in the text, they had to haul the fish back and they had one less guy, perhaps even the strongest among them. The reason we have all these stories is, first of all, they happened, and second of all, in light of Jesus' resurrection, they have incredible significance, and I think that significance is found in noticing Jesus' loving responses. Not always gentle either, but always loving. Peter continued to need to learn things. Despite hearing Jesus explained, despite hearing Jesus explain what a good neighbor is in the, when asked by someone in the crowd, despite seeing him with the Syrophoenician woman and the woman in John chapter 4, even up until Acts chapter 9, Peter's continuing to learn that worship of Jesus is married to loving neighbor also. And it is so encouraging to me that one who spent so many years with Jesus continued to need to be taught not only about worship of God and that Jesus is prophet and priest and king, but also that that means we love neighbor. And I bring that up both because it's true and because we see it in the story of Peter, but also because I'm bothered a little bit more so than usual by, and I, it's sad that I would say more so than usual, by the, the shooting in the synagogue in California. And there are a number of reasons, and I'm not going to go Bullworth on you, you know that movie with the politician that starts telling everything he thinks? I'm not going to do that because I have a good friend who cautioned me not to. And also because I need to take some time to think and to, there's some things about it that I want to study. And if you want to know individually why I'm extra bothered by this, I'd be happy to tell you. Love for God also means love for neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Anyone. Anyone that God puts into our life. We have at least four members of our church who identify themselves as Jewish followers of Jesus visited with some of them this week. I'm very encouraged to see our youth group uh, doing a, a collaborative venture with the, the Bushy Hill Synagogue talking about their faith. 
Not because we believe in pluralism, but because we believe in loving neighbor. And that was already in the books, and I encouraged Will to do it. And he said he would do it, and they're taking it from there. I talked to Rabbi Becca a little bit earlier in the week, and by talked, I mean I called her because I'm Gen X, and she texted me because she's Gen Y. And she said, thanks so much. It's good to know that we're with you. So I want to ask for one thing about this particular story. I want to ask you to pray for me. Not because my heart's heavy, though that's true, but because leadership in light of the gospel and the command, the command, love God and love neighbor, is challenging in 2019. So I'd appreciate your prayers in this regard. And again, if you want to talk individually, a number of people in the 9 o'clock service asked me some really interesting individual questions that are helping me process, you're welcome to. I want to say one thing about Peter and his friends, going back to the text specific. Historians and people that are um, against Christianity historically and, and evidentially from, as a religion think that it's a means of social control or at least bad for culture will say that what the disciples did was uh, stole his body and then began to perpetuate this myth about his resurrection so that they could gain power and, and really be insurrectionists in the Roman Empire. I love these 15 verses in light of that criticism of Christianity. We have very few accounts of the risen Christ. And what happens? They have a charcoal fire. It seems to me that these are not obvious, insurrectionist, brilliant rebels, at least in the way that they present themselves. So I just wanted to point that out. Doesn't prove the case of Christ, but it certainly, look at the criticisms of the evidence of Christianity. These men and women do not seem to me to be obvious rebels who knew a great deal about what they were doing. Peter and his friends go out to fish, and, and they used to fish together. And I think this is John helping us remember how disoriented they were. We at least have some grasp of the idea of resurrection. It's not new to us. We were not friends with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And so it's, it's very different for us. In their disorientation, they're longing for a moment that felt familiar. Makes sense, right? And they fished at night because that's when they fished. That wasn't weird. They want to go back to the old ways. I... Um, Worked at a church in St. Louis for 12 years, and when I'm talking to an old friend about that church, I still talk about it in the present tense. And the reason is not because I want to be there. I talk about the barn in the present tense also. The reason is it's disorienting to be in community with a group of people for 12 years and learn their stories and mine, and then we haven't been part of it in six. Well, there's my little bit of disorientation coming forward. I still talk about it in the present tense. I'm working on it, though. Maybe this will be the day that I stop doing that. The disciples wanted something that they were familiar with because their hearts were unsettled, even though they were beginning to come to grips with the resurrection of Christ. And I wonder if John's a little miffed. You remember the story of them running to the tomb, and John points out that, like, Peter had a lead, but then John beat him to the tomb? And John kind of brings up a lot that he was a disciple Jesus loved. I wonder if they always got along. And the reason I say that is there are a lot of details in the story that are so human and I think they got along famously, but it's not clear whether he resented Peter leaving them for the catch of fish. 
And the reason I'm talking about this is not only because I want us to be able to imagine the story so that we can hear by faith the words of Jesus, it's also because this is a shockingly mundane story in light of an event that changed everything about how we utilize our calendar and what we believe and, and even how we understand religion. The incarnation is very uh, different than most religions. And grace is different than most religions, though it is not entirely unique as an idea. So the world is being forever changed by the resurrection of Christ. And some of the most specific verses we have about the risen Christ and how he spent his time are this. These women that confused Jesus with a gardener. These men that are fishing and made sure to count the fish, which was very typical. When you get the boat back to shore, you count, and there are 153 of them. And that number is not symbolic. It's because that's how many fish they caught. They didn't catch 152 or 154. It was 153. And whatever you think about the Bible and the Gospels, there are men who criticized Christianity who would have verified that John claimed to be a witness. Writers. Do you catch that? Like, they would say, yes, he claimed to be a witness. Meaning, this is textual evidence of these men and women who claimed to meet the risen Christ. Peter and his friends go out to fish, and Jesus lends them a hand. Is this a miracle? Again, the mundaneness of the story seems so profound to me. Cast your net over on the right. It fills with 153 fish. I think Jesus is helping them remember back to the time that they went out in two boats and Jesus taught them about the kingdom and the with God life and then he told them to cast their nets on the other side and the net broke and they had a lot of trouble getting the fish in. But it's such a more subtle story than that from Luke chapter 5. And this time, instead of explaining or teaching, they pull in the 153 fish and Jesus says, let's have breakfast. And among, in addition to the fact that it's a very mundane story, because Jesus is beginning to teach us, teach his disciples, and then us, that now it's us. Now it's on us to teach people about the good news. It's the Holy Spirit's power, but it's our role to teach people about the with God life, to teach people about faith in Jesus and his grace and mercy. One thing I want to point out alongside that is the deliberateness of Jesus' love. Over 500 times, someone asks him a question and he always answers. And he answers specifically. He answers Peter differently than he answers John, than he answers Thomas. And here he's deliberate. And you know how I know that? Because I don't think he had one of those charcoal things that you stuff the newspaper in and put the charcoal on and get the fire going in 10 minutes instead of 30. He spent time getting the charcoal fire going. The fire was ready before the disciples got there. There's a deliberateness to the way he answers questions. There's a deliberateness to the way he talks with Mary and the way he talks with Martha and the way he talks with Peter. And he doesn't mind at all stopping during one of the most significant days in the history of history to have breakfast. And there's a little bit of modeling for us here. You have been given neighbors in your life. And it is good to be deliberate about getting to know them and befriending them. You have good friends. And that friendship is not just the shared circumstances of the past. It's for your encouragement today and into the future.
If you are married, sometimes I hear married people say something to the effect of, if I just understood the opposite gender, this is so, I have such great news for you. You don't need to even try to do that. But be deliberate with the spouse that God has given you. Parents, your kids need about 10 minutes a day with just you. Did you know that? I have two children. Many of you have more. And you're like, where are those 10 minutes in my calendar? That's a challenge. I know it's a challenge. But hear me. They need about 10 minutes of your focused attention alone. They need that deliberate love and pause from the day. And the reason I'm talking about this is because, again, in the most significant, one of the most significant couple of days in human history, Jesus and the disciples are sitting and eating and talking and probably laughing because charcoal is apparently part of the kingdom life. Not only talking to people about Jesus, which is incredibly important, not only learning to follow him in all that he has commanded us, not only learning the wonderful promises of Scripture, but also learning to sit with our friends. The with God life is not only when you're in church, it's not only when you're praying or reading, it's in every moment of your life. What kind of a grill man do you think Jesus was? I remember when I learned not to flip burgers more than once, you know? Because if the the patty's not too big and it's not too hot, you really only have to flip a burger once. I still struggle. I learned this when I was like 26. He probably started with skin side down, right? Because fish. Think so? And here's why I'm asking. Because this is a long text where Jesus is reminding, he's letting them continue to come to grips with the fact that he's Savior, prophet, priest, and king while reminding them that he is their friend also and that they could share a good and mundane moment. They're learning, oh, he's not only a prophet who explains life to us, he's also a priest. His work atoned for us on the cross. They're beginning to learn that. He's not just a priest, he's a king over sin and death. And he is also still my friend who cooked breakfast for me this morning. You know, the 40 or so day, not or so, the 40 days that Jesus was around in his risen form, I kind of wonder why he didn't go to Pilate, you know? Remember Pilate, the one who unjustly allowed him to be crucified, judged, judged very unfairly and then crucified? Why didn't he appear to Pilate? He just hung out with Pilate. Pilate, remember me? I didn't answer your questions for a while. Then I answered them profoundly. You washed your hands. You remember, just a couple days ago. Because that would have been very faint, that would have made this whole moment very famous. Why didn't he appear to Caesar? You know? It's very unclear how Jesus traveled in his resurrection body, but he could have gotten there. And he didn't. Whose role was it to talk to people of influence? Philip's. Remember when he meets the Egyptian official? The Apostle Paul? Peter and John? And now you and me. We're the ones tasked with telling our own souls and the rest of the world about the good news of Jesus. That in light of his work and his mercy, we are freed into relationship with him and then as his agents of love for God and neighbor. That's the Holy Spirit's power and the Holy Spirit's work in us and we get to participate with it. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, would you help us to believe and to believe more deeply that you are Savior and friend, that you are prophet and priest and king and fond of us, and with us in church and in our everyday moments of food and community. For your glory and our good, would you teach us to be deliberate in our neighbor love? And, oh, Holy Spirit, would you make this gathering of Christ's followers one that makes much of your name and learns to love neighbor well? Amen.